It wasn't long ago that countries behind the Iron Curtain seemed mysterious to us Westerners. But today, we're flocking in droves to places like Hungary. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. As we marvel at how Hungary has blossomed into a newly free society, we're also struck by the richness of its history and culture. A millennium ago, Hungary was controlled by rough-and-tumble nomads. A century ago, it helped rule a lumbering empire that controlled half of Europe. During the Soviet era, it was famous for its feisty uprisings and moderate goulash communism. And today, Hungary retains a sense of the old-world elegance, a place where you can soak in thermal baths before taking in a world-class opera. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring Hungary. But first, let's start off the hour with some of your calls. We'd love to hear from you at 877-333-RICK. It's all ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. They're known for their hearty wine and spicy cuisine, their relaxing thermal spas, and their impressive track record in music, science, and business. But most of all, Hungary has a polite, classy way of making you feel right at home. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're working up an appetite for travel to Hungary. But first, I'd like to hear about some of your travel adventures. What kind of surprises have you encountered? Tell us your travel stories at 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or you can write up a paragraph or two by email, and we'll post it to the radio section of our website. The email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Christine from Rescue, California. Hi, Christine. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. I've never heard of a place called Rescue. Oh, it's a very small community. What part of California? Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. How do you rescue yourself from uh, the day-to-day grind? One of the things that we did, and, and I know you've had some callers inquiring about southern Italy, and this past summer we were in Italy, but I had told my husband I refused to set foot on Italian soil until I could go to my grandparents' villages, huh. which or in Calabria, which is the toe. We had a wonderful trip. We stayed in a resort in southern Italy where it was 95% Italians. Hmm. And they just love the beach. And they go there for weeks at a time and just are beach people. Meaning it was a beach resort with almost no international tourism. There was uh, no other Americans. There was maybe two other couples from Germany. And this is the south tip of Italy, but not in Sicily, right. down in the tip, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, the the one thing that I was totally unprepared for um, was the Sassy and Matera. And um, it's, it's probably not everyone's cup of tea. Accommodations there, we actually stayed in the Hotel Sassy, which the rooms are carved out of the uh, limestone, and so we stayed in, in actually a cave. Now, it was a fairly luxurious case, but, um, you know, it had all the amenities. Okay, so just for, for clarity for our listeners, the Sassi in Matera, S-A-S-S-I in Matera, M-A-T-E-R-A. So the Sassi is that, uh, Matera is a town in the south of Italy, or a region, right? And um, the Sassi is uh, these uh, troglodyte uh, uh, fancy little guest houses, or what? Well, the, the Sassi are cliff dwellings that had been inhabited for hundreds of well, thousands of years, and in the 50s, the government was ashamed of them and felt that it portrayed Italy in the wrong fashion, and they tried to move everyone out, and they succeeded in moving most of the people out. Hmm. But there is a resurgence of people going back in and settling in it, and there's quite a bit of construction going on. But are these local people with humble lifestyles, or are these rich people from big cities that are having a romantic little small-town escape? No, it's Pretty much the the local people. Okay, so that's that local character is rekindling in these um, cave dwellings, and and very proud of it. Very, wow. um, hmm. very mindful of the historic significance of their community, and probably mindful of the natural um, cooling that that provides in the hot summers there. Yes. Now, it, I sat for two hours on the terrace, just staring out wow. because it was so incredible and. Um, when you say cave dwellings and you think of Arme Severe, you think of the open front. Well, these all had uh, facades on them. 
it it was just incredible. They told us that it was used to film the Passion of the Christ um, because of of the authentic look. They couldn't replicate. So you still have that ancient sort of ambience when you walk the streets. It it is definite, and and it's very difficult to maneuver a car okay, so there. If people are interested in this, they they just look for Matera. That's the town, right? M A T E R A. Actually, there there are websites for the Sassy. If they were to put in the Sassy and Matera, they would be able to find quite a bit of information on it. It's the way to get away from it all in Italy, I think, and it's getting discovered, so probably want to see it sooner rather than later. Exactly. It, it's one of those things where you hate to tell anyone about it, but... Okay, Christine, um, just between you and me, then we won't tell anybody okay. except lucky people that are listening <laughs> to us. Thanks so much for your call. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Britta, on the phone from Buffalo. Hi, Britta. Hi, Rick Steve. Um, I just had a really quick question about traveling in France. Uh-huh. Um, my friend and I were on a student budget, so we're very tight. And we're planning on visiting Avignon and the Loire Valley. And we're wondering what's the best deal on train tickets in France? Well, in Europe, buses are clunkier, but cheaper than train travel. So you might want to look into that, but factor in the inconvenience of spending more time on the buses. For some people, it's an advantage, actually, because it goes through the town slowly, and you stop here, and you got people coming and going, and it's a little more colorful. Uh, I use the buses a lot where trains are not very good, and that would be Ireland, Spain, Portugal, Greece, Turkey. Uh, Other countries like France have excellent trains, and I do not use the buses in France because the trains are so good. Then you've got to concern yourself with, do I pay for an express train or do I take a regular train? France has the best network of bullet trains anywhere in Europe, the TGV, and uh, it is like an airplane on rails, but you do pay for it, and you will pay a little more to, uh, I was going to say fly, almost fly, on those rails rather than the normal trains. Um, People who are in the know, who are locals, find that if you buy tickets in advance, you get a cheaper fare than if you buy it right at the station before you take off. Now, I don't know how exactly how that works in, in France, but I know in general in Europe, if you are in a town and you know when you're going to go or you know you're going to buy a ticket sooner or later to, from this point to that point, the sooner you buy that ticket, the more likely you are to get a better price. Okay, so if we bought it before we left even, would that be a good deal? Uh, probably not. I would wait until you get there because it's okay. cheaper to buy it over there than it is here. Okay. Yeah. Good luck on your trip. Yes, thank you very much. Sounds exciting. Yes, very. <laughs> All right. Phil in Bellingham, Washington, sends us an email about a float trip he took with his girlfriend. I took my girlfriend on a three-day, two-night float trip down the wild and scenic river stretch of Montana's Missouri River, the same place Lewis and Clark traveled in 1805. Permits are not required here, and first-timers can easily do the trip. I absolutely loved the trip, but my girlfriend was not very outdoorsy, and we broke up immediately afterwards. Oh, Phil, it's probably better you found out sooner rather than later. We have Rosie on the line from Portland, Oregon. Thanks for your call. My question basically is, from what I've seen in my travels in Europe, uh, Europe Through the Back Door has really changed the face of Europe that I've seen. Um, I see so many people carrying the Rick Steves guidebooks of various types, and we can all identify with one another, and it's a good conversation point. But I was wondering if you could tell me what effect that um, your tourism has had on kind of undiscovered areas of Europe, such as Cinque Terre, and right. are there areas that you found in your in your travels uh, that aren't interested in promoting themselves to tourists because of some perceived negative impact? Mm, those are interesting questions, yes. Well, I've been, I just can't believe how many people are using my books these days, and if you've traveled with my books in places that I really push, like the Cinque Terre or, you know, little towns that I, I call my back doors, you'll notice that I've had an impact on those communities. Mm-hmm. I, You know, I've just been spending a lot of time reading a lot of feedback from my readers this last couple of days, and it occurs to me I'm not sending people off the beaten track that much. I'm pretty much skimming the surface, and I've got a few of my favorite, you know, destinations that I just love to uh, send people to, and they are... Uh, I, I always have to factor in accessibility. It's not... I'm not getting to the most... Um, distant and off-the-beaten-path places because nobody would go to some islands off of Sicily compared mm-hmm. to the Cinque Terre, the Italian Riviera that I've, I've sent so many people to because it's just an hour away from Pisa or two hours away from Florence. So right. it's a combination of accessibility and off-the-beaten-pathness. 
And, uh, boy, I've changed the economy in these towns. I mean, they're naming streets after me, and uh, when I come <laughs> into town, I'm, I have a hard time spending any money, you know, so it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh-huh. I'm always a little leery about coming in because have I changed the character? Have I, have I ruined it? And I check in with the locals, and they're just thrilled to see me, and, I'm, and they no longer have to do the hard labor in the fields. They're running little cyber cafes or have fancy restaurants or renting out rooms, and, you know, they like that. Mm-hmm. And I talk to the tourist there, and they're all very thankful for being sent to these places. I do meet the occasional tourist that is a little disgruntled, and they wished I would have just told them alone and not everybody else. But, <laughs> you know, I can't feel sorry for them. They just got to go to those places that are not so handy and accessible. So I see myself as sort of the hired hand of the American traveling public, trying to be one step ahead in finding these places, and especially these days helping us spend our dollars wisely. Um, I, I am careful about not sending travelers to places that are too tender to absorb the tourism. Because, you know, if there was a beautiful little flower of a village and everybody stampeded over it and they trampled it, all I would do is ruin a little flower and frustrate a lot of tourists. And and that could happen quite reasonably. So I'm careful about that. And And I check in virtually every year to all of these places and see how things are going. And it is, uh, it's an ongoing struggle for these little companies, these little businesses, mom-and-pop restaurants and B&Bs and guest houses to make it. They're not really having it on easy street, uh, and, and they appreciate the business, and I might send them, you know, half of their business or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not easy for them, so they need the promotion. And my travelers, uh, people who like these back doors, uh, in, appreciate the, the leads. So it's, um, I just have a fun job that way. Um, my my challenge is to go to places that really are less touristed. I mean, there's so much opening up now, and, and I just don't have the time to get to all these places that I'd like to. Maybe you could do that. I will do that for you. I promise. Good. Does that does that answer your question about... It, it does, and that's pretty much what I expected. I just yeah. kind of wondered how how you gauged, you know, gauged your impact. Well, it's an interesting issue, and I, you know, 12 million Americans went to Europe last year. And I had the best-selling guidebook of any international guidebook last year, my Italy book, and I believe it sold around 50,000 copies. So the point is, not many Americans are using guidebooks. Most Americans are going over there on groups, and they just are packed through, and they, the last thing they're going to do is kind of be off on their own and getting a guidebook. So it's an, sort of an odd American traveler that's out there with these books uh, exploring. Consequently, we, we do find ourselves uh, getting off the beaten path without even trying too hard. But um, it's just every traveler has to decide how much how much challenge and adventure do they want. Do they want it all on stage, and do they want it all homogenized and sterilized and uh, air-conditioned? Mm-hmm. Or can they get out there and sweat with the locals and have a good time that way? For some people, that's not their idea of a vacation. For other people, that's what it's all about. That's true. Yeah. Hey, thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye. Jane from Eden, North Carolina, emails us about some fun she had down under. A delightful side trip in Australia was to visit Kangaroo Island, a short flight from Adelaide. The kangaroos there are darker than other Australian roos. We saw the carnivorous honeydew plant, too, and the koalas were everywhere in the trees. We saw our first wallaby at Seal Bay and took a night tour to see hundreds of fairy penguins returning to the shore after a long day of fishing. As our visit ended, a spiny little anteater-type creature crossed the road in front of us as if to invite us back on another visit. An Insider's Guide to Hungary is next on Travel with Rick Steves. You can reach us at 877-333-RICK or write us at radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling to Hungary. I have with me a school teacher from a small town in Hungary named Etelka, and she also works with me as a tour guide, and uh, she's traveled to our studios today to give us an insight into her country, Hungary. Etelka, thanks for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. And it's, it's nice to have you here. It's my pleasure. Now, Etelka, I, I was going to introduce you with your family name, but it's complicated. What, what is your family name? Well, my family name is Barine Beletz. It's really exciting because Barine, it is given after my husband. My husband's name is Pari. Ne is added when you are married. Beletz is my maiden name because I wanted to uh, keep my maiden name as well. So, pair is the little word in the middle? That's right. What does that mean? Pari. Pari. This is my husband's uh, family name. Okay. So everybody in Hungary, if they're married, you know their husband's name and the maiden name. Well, you have got several uh, varieties. If you want to keep your maiden name, you can have it. If you don't want to keep your maiden name, you can have your husband's name fully. Yes. For example, my husband is Andrew Andras. I could have Pari Andras Ne, but I add the Ne somewhere either at the end or at the beginning. So is it a, mod- a, a modern choice for some women to keep their maiden name? That's right. That's right. Sli- okay. During the last uh, uh, 15, 20 years, we can have the choice. In the last 15 or 20 years, really, yeah. since the revolution then. That's right. <laughs> so during communist times, people would keep the husband's name and the maiden name? Mainly. Mainly. So there's more strong feminism since the... True. Freedom. Interesting. Now, most people know Hungary from... Budapest, the capital, but you live in a small town. That's right. Uh, I live in a really small town. Uh, may I tell the tell n- name of this, the village? Yeah. This is called uh, Tornamero, and I'm really proud of it because you can see I have uh, come to the States from a small village thanks to knowing the languages. Uh, and this small town is uh, really rich in Baroque buildings. And, uh, you know, Hungary is famous not only for the old buildings, but we have got great, great traditions, wine culture and mm-hmm. uh, thermal spas. And in my village, there is a thermal spa, too. That's right. They say if you dig a hole anywhere in Hungary, True. you find hot water. You are looking for oil and hot water, hot spring is coming. <laughs> and you get hot water. Well, it's not maybe as uh, much money as oil, but it's more fun to sit in. That's true. <laughs> Actually, let's talk about the spas right now. Budapest has a lot of, Budapest is so famous for its spas. True. Are all of the great spas in the great cities, or do you actually have small town spas? That's true. For example, Europe's most famous spa is not in Budapest. It's in Havis. It's uh, another uh, western part of Hungary. And all over in Hungary, you can find uh, curative hot waters, like in Eger or in Hajdúszoboszló near Debrecen, wherever you travel. And they are curative. And in the spas... Uh, massages, uh, family-friendly uh, surroundings. Whatever you want, you can find here and uh, cure your so how illnesses. Are they, how are they curative? Is it the minerals in the water? Or? That's true, the minerals, sulfur. Mm-hmm. I, I know that a lot of people go to the spas and they soak and they play chess at the same time. That's true. It's so Hungarian. It's, that's a classic Hungarian it's image. Classic it's sitting Hungarian. in a spa, steam everywhere. And true. guys, usually, uh, very often, guys that are too big for their bathing suits I have to say. <laughs> you are right. Playing chess in with the water all around. It's a beautiful experience, very relaxing. That's true. And where the spas, uh, there are always uh, swimming pools. So if you want just to swim in cold water, you can do this. That's right. Now, you were, you're a teacher of English and Russian. Yeah. And you must have learned uh, English and Russian then as a student. True. Now, tell us about the first time you came. You went to the United States the year after freedom came to Hungary, right? Yes. Tell me a little bit about that experience. How did that happen? A a girl from a small town coming to America the year after the revolution, 1990. Yes. Uh, You know, we had the chance mainly to travel to Russia or to the Eastern European countries before the changes. And being a uh, teacher of Russian and being a student, I had the chance to go to Russia several times, but I always wanted to come to an English-speaking countries. It was very difficult, but in the 1990, in, right, in 1990, uh, George Soros, a Hungarian-born uh, person, uh, had a kind of... Uh, oh, George Soros. Soros. This is this, he's very rich in the United States, and he gives money to many different That's causes. true. Okay, he's Hungarian, all right. He's Hungarian, and he supported for some years the English teachers. 
And in 1990, the Soros Foundation supported the English teachers. So I decided, well, I try it. I cannot lose. And I was so happy that among 500 teachers, only 30 teachers could come to uh, Maryland University for a summer course, six weeks summer course. And I felt myself in the heaven. And what is more interesting, when I wanted to come, I had to apply for it and I had to go to Budapest for a personal meeting. And I was afraid to tell my uh, school director because he was the first secretary of the Communist Party and I was sure he mm. won't give me free time. But that time, the Saturdays were free. We didn't go to school. And the uh, conversation was on Saturday. So you snuck to Budapest to that's, apply for this uh, scholarship to go to America. That's right. And your teacher was still a communist supporter even after the... I mean, he, his, his heart was with the, the old days. That's right. It was only 1990. You must, have, you must have been a very good student to be uh, that strong with your interests uh, at that time. That's true. But to tell you the truth, I loved the Russian as well because I worked in Russian camps and I, I got a special trip to Lake Baikal. Mm -hmm. So it was the language, what I really loved and my students. And I wanted to show and to give the knowledge back to my students. As a school teacher today, you're still teaching the language, English and Russian. I understand in the old days, everybody had to learn Russian, mm -hmm. and generally people did not want to learn Russian because they wanted to have Western orientation, so they wanted to learn English. Today, are people still learning Russian, or is everybody looking West? Well, to tell you the truth, in the last 15 years, I have been teaching only English. On, luckily, uh, some students... Uh, is that because uh, students don't want to learn Russian? That's true. They don't want to learn Russian. And uh, I'm, I'm really missing the other language. Now, let's talk about the Hungarian language itself. Uh, it's notorious for being difficult, I think, um, because it's not related to the other languages around. Is that right? You are right. We've got um, Eric on the phone in Michigan right now, and he's got, I think, a concern about the, the language. Eric, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for all the great uh, travel tips over the years. And um, I had an opportunity. I went to uh, Budapest in '91. And uh, at that time, I'd realized that the uh, language was so different uh, from anything else out there. And then also, in, in terms of English speaking, what I found was that most people spoke uh, German. So it was kind of a barrier. I was just wondering what kind of tips you could offer in terms of, you know, getting around and understanding. What year were you there, Eric? Yes, in Budapest. What year? Uh, 91. 91, Eric found most people who, who spoke German instead of English. Is that still the case, Itelka? No, no. The first language in Hungary is English. Everybody is studying uh, as a first language English, and as a second language is German. And, of course, Spanish, Italian, getting more and more popular in Hungary. And Russian is just after Norwegian. That's right. Okay. Eric, uh, so it's a big change in the last 15 years. You'd find English no problem these days. Great. I'd uh, definitely love to get back there. It was a wonderful city and very beautiful. Budapest. All right. Hey, well, thanks for your call. <laughs> Julie in Sandy, Oregon. Julie, thanks for your call. What, do you have any questions for Atelka? I do. We've been using your travel books for many, many years, and they've been amazing. Our next trip that we're going to be doing is Budapest and Prague also, but we probably only have about 10 days, and I'm wondering if that is doable to do those two towns? And also, if we have that amount of time, is there certain towns within those two cities that would be good to see? What we like to do is kind of go more on the outskirts. We've done the Vernats in Italy and went to Spain and did kind of the outskirts city. So I was just curious about your opinion on that. So uh, let's see. Etelka, Julie has 10 days, and she's interested in Prague and Budapest. And you're interested in... Uh, making some small-town additions to that, is that right? Well, anything that I can do in 10 days for those two cities and around, you know, right. that, that are doable without rushing it too much so we can actually get the feel of the different cities. I would spend three or four days in each of the big cities, but Itelka, how would you uh, spice it up with some small-town excursion from Budapest? First of all, I highly recommend you my favorite town. It's Eger. One reason is the wine, and the other reason is the hot spring. Okay, this is Eger, E-G-E-R, e right. and it has and wine. wine in hot springs? Yes, you will just love it. Well, that's good, because I'm actually a fine wine rep here in mm. Portland. So Red wine? <laughs> I'm a fine wine consultant here in Portland, Oregon. Mm. So that would actually be a good thing. 
please come to Agar and its region. Sure, you will find a new world of experience. <laughs> you know, I'm so excited about this because Itelka just came into our studio and she brought with her a hand-painted wooden box with two beautiful bottles of Hungarian wine in it. And, oh, wow. Uh, I remember very fondly when I was in Agar, the wine experience there. They have little wine... Um, wine vineyards outside of town. You can walk there almost, and it's oh. like uh, the, the Grinzing in Vienna or something like this. Oh, and, uh, now, would you spend the night there, or would that be more of a day trip from oh, the of, of course a night, because if you visit a family-owned winery, you should spend the night there. Uh, one reason, or the most important reason, Hungarian people love drinking wine. We have always reason to drink wine. When we <laughs> when we happy, we drink. When we sad, we drink. And you know, life is too short to drink bad wine. And I in Hungary, you will find just good red and white wines. <laughs> oh, I agree. So maybe one night then in Eger? That's, that's true, one night in Eger. And if you have time and if you will have car, for example, you can visit other parts of uh, Hungary, Sopron, Kőszeg, Győr. So you'll need to get a guidebook uh, on Hungary. And um, also remember my experiences, local guides in what we call Eastern Europe, Hungary, Poland, Mm -hmm. Czech Republic, and so on, are less expensive than in the West, and they're more important. And you can often get a guide in the West, in the East, like Hungary, Mm -hmm. with a car for less than what you'd pay for a guide without a car in Frank, in uh, Germany or France. So, uh, you know, do the Google, do the guidebook thing, uh, go to the local tourist boards, and if you can hire a local guide for a day, they could drive you around the countryside visiting wineries, and you could even line up a, a farmhouse, uh, guest house kind of experience, I would imagine. Oh, great. So it sounds like maybe three nights in both cities and then stay in Edgar and then just kind of see what, and what one, exciting. Mm-hmm. And one more thing I would highly recommend you. During the last few years, the village tourism is getting more and more important in Hungary. So if you stay at a house, uh-huh. you will just love it. You start your day with a wonderful Hungarian plum or apricot brandy and nice traditional Hungarian uh, food is prepared oh. at home. Yeah, that's kind of what we like. We've used the, um, the, the houses and the bed and breakfast with Rick Steves that he's recommended before, and they've just been right on the money for everything that he said. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's the essence of going through the back door is you're staying in people's homes, you're spending less money, you're having a more intimate, convivial time with the local people, right. and you're eating and drinking what they drink uh, with, with their sort of uh, um, ambience. So good luck, Julie, and thank you so much for your call. Well, thank you. Uh-huh. I appreciate it. Bye now. Bye-bye. Uh, Scott Cooper has been uh, has just emailed us, and he said, and if American wanted to spend more than a few days touring Hungary, which towns and cities outside of Budapest and Eger would you recommend? Uh, what's another town, uh, Itelka? Uh, I know that the uh, Lake uh, uh, Balaton is a big resort for local people, but I remember in the communist days, uh, people in the Warsaw Pact countries had to make a big deal about the resorts that they had access to because they couldn't go to the Italian Riviera or something like that. So Lake Balaton would be the big thing. Is it actually a good destination or was it a good destination when you could not go to the West? It was a really good destination. It is still a good destination. It was very popular during the communism with the German tourists. And that's why a lot of people think that Hungarian people speak only German, but it's uh, not true now. And around the Lake Balaton, this is the biggest lake in uh, Europe, around the Lake Balaton, a lot of small family-sized hotels. Hmm. And uh, So you would recommend that? I would really recommend So Because, as again, people know Budapest. They don't know the rest of Hungary. So if it's a short trip, Budapest, of course, Eger, because and ba- that's in and, and Balaton. And Balaton. Balaton. Very yeah. good. With wines. <laughs> With the wines, yes, of course. <laughs> now, I want to get on to a little bit about the, the big picture. Americans tend to lump all of the former communist countries together, but Hungary really is uh, ethnically different. The language is different. How would you today sum up the difference between Hungary and its neighboring countries? Linguistically, it's completely different. Yes. The Hungarian language is absolutely not similar to the surrounding countries' uh, language because we are not Slavonic. It's totally uh, difficult to speak the language. We have got a lot of... now, that was a problem 20 years ago, but today people speak English. That's right. That's right. But to learn the language is difficult. But now, uh, in Hungary, we say the more languages you speak, the more person you are. And this is my aim. You, you should learn 
more and more languages. And if you speak two languages, you are two persons. So a well-educated person today in Hungary, yeah. a 20-year-old college-educated young mm-hmm. person, would likely speak more than Hungarian? Uh, he would speak uh, mainly Russian a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's all. Maybe German. 20 years ago, but today, but today, I mean. Oh, oh today, today. If, uh, if you have an educated person who's yeah. 20 years old. Oh, he's, he sure speaks English mm-hmm. and German. Okay. So that's my experience. It's, it's important to know the polite words when you're in Hungarian, but I would not stay away from Hungary because you don't understand the language. Mm-hmm. You see, well, tell me a couple of, how do you say, uh, good morning, uh, nice to see you today. Tell mm-hmm. me that in Hungarian. kívánok. Örülök, hogy találkoztunk. But I I would uh, tell you one word. For example, when you say uh, thank you, the response in English, you are welcome. But the Hungarian people say szívesen. And it means that the Hungarian language is very polite. Not only the people, but mm. the language itself. Szívesen, uh, you are welcome. If I would translate it into English, it means from my heart. So it would be important to remember a few of the polite words. When That's That right. would be very impressive to the Hungarians you meet if the That's American right. could do that. Now, if we're thinking about Budapest, mm-hmm. first of all, is it Budapest or Budapest? It's Budapest. So typically Western people say Budapest. Yes, but the Hungarian way of pronunciation is uh, Budapest. And historically it was two towns, right? Buda Bud- and Pest. And Pest, divided by the Danube. True. Now we think of a lot of cities that have a river going through it, like London, but it's not that wide. But the Danube is really quite wide at Budapest. So there was two towns across the river. How did they come together? While it was united, uh, uh, the two uh, towns, uh, about a century uh, years ago. And the uh, hilly part uh, is Buddha, and the flat part is Pest. And is there a different personality in either town? Is one more historic? Is one more uh, modern? That's true. The Buddha is uh, more uh, historic, I would say. There is the That's castle. That's the castle and the That's palace. That's right, the palace, the royal palace. And Pest side is where the business center, the famous Vasi Street, the shopping uh, so all center. So all the commercial action is commercial. in Pest. Yes, in Pest. Pest. And Buddha, we hear of the Buddha Hills. So yeah. the, the palace was on the hills. But there's huge bridges connecting the two, so it's quite easy to, to be coming together with that. True. What, are the, what would you say are the top attractions for people to experience when they go to Budapest? Mm-hmm. In Budapest, I would uh, recommend, well, uh, as I mentioned, the, the thermal uh, bars, it's okay, but... The tourist attractions are the different festivals, for example, summer festivals, national dance and house gathering, folk craft, fairs, Danube Carnival, it's international. So there's lots of entertainment and cultural activities, and you can learn about that when you arrive at the tourist information office. I love to check out the music when I'm in Budapest. It's great music. Yeah. And there's a great coffee house scene. And, of course, you've got such a rich history. I mean, what, what is... 996 was the foundation of Hungary? Or 896. 896. That's 896. Right. So you have your 1100th anniversary just recently. Yeah. Wow. There's more with Atelka coming right up as we learn more about her home country, Hungary. It's Travel with Rick Steves. 877-333-RICK. We're exploring Hungary today on Travel with Rick Steves. We have a couple of people on the line. Let's go to them. We got Mike um, in in Budapest. Mike, are you calling from Budapest? Um, actually, yes, I am. Wow! Thank you for calling. How's it no going? No problem. <laughs> it, it's going great over here. We love it. Why do you love it? I've got I've got a 13 year old and 11 year old daughter, and the city itself is a uh, is a wonderful city to live in. It's very livable, and uh, the travel in the area and in Hungary is very easy. You know, a few different things to get used to and, and certainly some language barriers, but uh, we've never had any major problems and, and have really, really enjoyed the experience. Do you find that young people um, do speak English so that you can overcome the language barrier if you know who to talk to? Yeah, yes, and, and ultimately if, uh, if you're struggling with one person, they'll usually go get somebody else and, and somebody usually will help you. If you, if you go to a more remote area, uh, it could be a little more difficult. Have you tried the spas there in Budapest that are so famous? Oh, yes. Sacheni uh, uh, down by Hero Square is awesome. You Been there go, several times. It's like, the, uh, it's like the, norm, the local swimming pool, except it's got all of this old-world elegance, right? Exactly. It's beautiful, and it's nice because it's outdoors, and you can go to your kind of starter, not-as-warm pool, 
got a nice big kind of whirlpool in it, and the uh, the pressure they change the pressure around so you can stand over some uh, some different jets as you move over to the warmer baths. You can go into something nice and hot, and then you can go inside more of the mineral baths or down into the sauna. Wow, sounds good. And, uh, Do your very, kids very nice, very refreshing. Do your kids uh, enjoy it? Actually, we haven't been able to get the kids to that baths. We did the Marguerite Island um, baths with the with the kids. So. That's more family friendly, there, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So you, you should choose the bath. You should choose the bath with what um, character the baths want. Some for children, some for aristocratic sitting there and, and being elegant, and others more. And they active. do have some like male only, and I haven't I haven't been to any of those kind of baths, but they do have uh, kind of more specific baths and and different, more Turkish oriented or. Um, that sort of thing. And there's a lot of baths even outside of Budapest if you want to go to uh, Mishkolsk, Topolka, or other areas. They're even getting more... Itelka's smiling of, broadly. She goes, yes, that's a good one. So yeah. now, what brought your family to Hungary, and, and what sort of adjustments as a family did you have to make to become expats there? Well, it, I work for GE Healthcare. It's a division of uh, General Electric Company, and uh, we, they, I'm a technology manager for a team of engineers here. Okay. And uh, I, I've always been interested in international assignment, and the family decided uh, they were ready for it. So, Is the family uh, enjoying it, or is it just something you're doing for your own jollies? No. <laughs> it was, we, were all, you know, we were all kind of curious as to how it would work out, but I think the family so far has really loved it. Our kids are, you know, with a much greater diversity of, uh, of different countries and seeing things, you know, historically where they happened, like in Slovenia with the Soka River Valley in World War One. Right. Very, very dramatic to see these things, and then to to understand the Hungarian history. Have you been into the uh, the recent history? You know the the horrible time they had with the Nazis, and then with the communists. They've got the new House of Terror museum there. Yes, my my wife has visited that uh, with her folks, but I have not been at that one. Now maybe Atelka can give us a little angle on this, uh, but uh, boy, the House of Terror to me is fascinating because. There's enough time gone by since the end of communism where they can take a hard look at the secret police of both the, the, the Nazi and the communist days and uh, explain what happened in their town. And the poignant thing is the victims and the perpetrators of all that injustice, are, if the victims survived or, or their loved ones, are still on the street. They're, down the, they're in the neighborhood just a, across the way. And the evil people from the secret police are actually featured in the museum and they may still be alive and um, in the community. Uh, Telka, what is that like? Well, it's even today difficult uh, to talk about, but we try to forget about all these things. And if you don't mind, uh, may I share my personal opinions about... uh, Please do, yes. uh, ...about this, because, uh, well, I I was brought up in the uh, communism, and I have got my, with my family uh, the personal experiences uh, with that time. And what is really interesting, till the 1980s, I had no idea and knowledge about that two of my uncles were imprisoned in the gulag it, in Rechk in Hungary. Hungary had gulags. Yes, Hungary had gulags. We only think of Stalin and, and Siberia for gulags, but there were no. gul- that, that's a political prison. Huh? That's its political prison. And, and you didn't know. We didn't know. It is very close to my uh, hometown, my home village, and we had no idea that it worked there. Wow. And my parents didn't talk about it because uh, they were afraid of, uh, well, uh, having some bad experiences. Uh, and uh, a lot of people still have memories about the, that time. But isn't there a huge anger now that your I, government lied to you mm-hmm. and people in your neighborhood were... Mm-hmm. Secret police and holding these people. I wouldn't say that. So you've forgiven now. Yes, you're we, on to new things. That's right. We we try to look forward and wow. we we uh, try to live our uh, normal everyday life. You know, United and States. I agree. They, you don't hear much about that, Rick. In the although mm-hmm. they do in our school, for example, one of our daughters was taken downtown to a area where the where the uh, Jewish family was living, and a young girl who had since grown up and written a book about it talked about her experiences and for them to go down and see the actual apartment buildings and the area where it all occurred was was a pretty powerful experience. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, to have it in a museum, I think the old torture chambers from the Nazi times were then a student club in the communist times in the basement of that House of Terror. And all of this poignant overlapping terror and so on, it's just, it's probably healthy that 
the Hungarians are getting beyond that and not and not dwelling on it. Is that your thought, Mike? And a, and a good example of that is the uh, they've got a, a park, a statue park, they call it, where they took all the old communist statues and put them in one location, and now they're using it as a tourist attraction. Yeah, it's really so, kind of fun, isn't it? You go out there and it you is. get, I, I went out there and, uh, with one of our groups, and they've got a kitschy little souvenir shop where you can buy a CD called, I got a CD called The Greatest Hits of Communism, all the big marches and so on. So I think they're ready to get over the, the tough parts of the past and look forward and look for better times ahead is the, the, the feeling I get here, that that's yeah. really a move into the future. As a matter of fact, there's even it's sort of this kitschy communism thing is actually combined with a kind of a weird nostalgia, or ostalgia, they call it. Um, I remember in Budapest, there was actually a theme restaurant serving dreary food from the 1960s. A okay, communist restaurant. you'll have restaurant. to tell us what the name is so we can try it out. <laughs> yeah, it was a communist restaurant just off the main square. I don't know if it's still in business, but I know in, in, in parts of Eastern Europe, there's a sort of a nostalgia for the old days when it was secure and less of a rat race and so on. Yeah. Is there any... You feel no- some of that. It's, it's less secure today, and people feel that. So there, you do hear some of that, for sure, amongst the older generation, that there are some things that they did prefer about the security and the, the way it was more yeah. um, stable and... and People are treated in a similar fashion. And how, how's that? How's your experience at Telka? Do you have uh, f- older relatives and so on that have actual warm memories in the like they get a little bit romantic about the good old days? That's true. My parents' generation, they are a little bit nostalgic because that time everybody had their workplaces, uh, they had the jobs, and well, it's true uh, they had small amount of money, but the shops weren't full of different things. And they remember they have got the good memories that for that money they could uh, make ends meet. Yeah. Yes. So there was no terror of not being able to make ends meet. That's true. That's true. And it wasn't that long ago that it would take five years to get a phone or, you know, if you wanted a car, you could either have white or white. <laughs> yeah. The taxi driver said that, that, you know, it took you years to get something and and it wasn't wasn't much choice. But there doesn't sound to me like there's a lot of bitterness or... You know, they're just uh, ready to move on. I think half the people in Hungary have no living memory of communism. I mean, it's uh, the young society, and uh, it's been, what, 15 years now, and they're on to new stuff. Uh, Budapest used to be the little window on the West for other Warsaw Pact people. They couldn't go to Germany, but they could go to Budapest, and there you could get Western magazines, you could get a McDonald's hamburger, you could stand in line to buy Nike shoes. Do you remember those days, Italka? I remember. Tell me about your first McDonald's hamburger. (laughs) Well, my first uh, hamburger, I think I bought it in, in Budapest, in the first McDonald's. <laughs> and that's the irony is fast food, Western the, fast food, it was very slow because you had to wait all the way around the block to get to the hamburger stand. That's right. But my really fresh memory uh, about the uh, old times, our first car, uh, our first car was the Trabant, the so-called oh, uh, the West Trabant. German. And we had to wait, we had to sign up first of all, and we had to wait for three years. Wow. So this is a life. <laughs> That's wild. Mike, thank you so much. Do you have any last advice for any of our listeners that might be thinking about Hungary? Uh, I'd say that, uh, that you know, it's got a, a great airport. The facilities here are wonderful. You know, it's, uh, it's tremendous to visit. Don't, don't be, you know, don't have any bad Eastern Europe <laughs> ideas about <laughs> it. It's very, you know, you're very westernized, and yet you can still get out of that. But it's very easy to drive around and, and operate. And with a little bit of precaution and preparation, it's a, it's a wonderful place. That's great. Hey, best wishes with you and your family as you um, become temporary Hungarians there. All right. Sounds great, Rick. Thanks so much for your call. I'm talking with Itelka, uh, who is a teacher in a small town in Hungary. And she's joining us here in our Seattle studios and sharing her insight into her homeland. She also works with me as a tour guide, and it's just so great to get get a sense of what it's like to be in Hungary uh, today. If you'd like to get in on the conversation, email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I just got an email here from James in Kirkland, Washington. James uh, says, I used to have a Hungarian boss, a mad Transylvanian, who told stories about escaping during the revolution with his professor. You know, you've got this modern history, um, Itelka, of your struggles. You had your struggles with the um, during the Nazi times and in the communist times. You had a thrilling revolution in 1956, 56. but then that was stopped. And then you had this goulash communism, which was more of a mix, a little more freedom than the other countries. And then what, 1989, you got your actual independence. Independence, true. Talk about goulash communism. How was Hungary different with freedoms and economics than your neighboring states during the last decades of communism? Well, uh, in Hungary, our 
leader gave a little bit more freedom than uh, in the surrounding countries. Uh, as I mentioned to you, uh, we had enough money uh, just to live. We had enough money to buy things. And I think the shops were more supplied than uh, the other Eastern European countries. But it was really interesting. If we wanted to buy some electricity, I traveled to Russia. If I wanted to buy some leather clothes, I traveled to East Germany. And if I wanted to uh, buy some sport things, I traveled to the so-called Czech country, Czechoslovakia. Huh. So, uh, so you had to be creative to know what to get be- because you didn't have the laws of supply and demand shaping where the supply was. It was from top down, right? That's right. The, the, I always remember over there, everything they wanted you to buy was very cheap. Yeah. Everything they didn't want you to buy was either not available or very expensive. Yeah. Now, when communism finally came to an end, they had to privatize everything. Was, yeah. was, did that work well in Hungary? or It did not work well in Russia. How did they go from everything being state-owned to today where everything is privately owned? Yeah, it was uh, interesting. For an American, it's difficult to understand because uh, so-called uh, compensation tickets were issued in Hungary, and uh, people and families who had properties uh, before the nationalization, after 1990, they could get back or buy back their properties. Uh, for example, my uh, mother, my parent, uh, my grandparents had uh, some lands, and mother got some compensation tickets. But the value of these tickets wasn't a great one. And my mother decided she doesn't want to get back the land because she cannot uh, cultivate without machines. So she sold the compensation tickets. A lot of people who wanted to get back the houses, the lands, they bought the compensation tickets. Mm-hmm. And uh, with a lot of compensation tickets, they could get back their properties easier. So the clever and aggressive business people, True. they would get all of the compensation tickets from these more naive, more simple people. Yeah. And the naive, simple, normal people would have a little bit of money. That's but right. But the clever, aggressive people would have the real real estate and the real economic power. Yeah. So today you have a new elite in Abs- your country. Absolutely, absolutely. Small, uh, for example, a lot of small wineries mm-hmm. uh, are growing up, family-sized. They are really perfect. That's good. Now, is there a, is the economy good in Hungary? I would say it is really developing and, and I, not, I, not good, but uh, better and better. It's promising. Promising, yeah. And I've heard that the people, the young people of uh, f- former Warsaw Pact countries are so excited about capitalism and the opportunity to work hard and make money that they're having smaller families mm-hmm. and rather they'd have a, a house or a car than, than a family. Is there anything to this in Hungary? Or the, what are the values of people today when it comes from a family or making money? Well, unluckily... The families do not want uh, four or, or five children. First, they, they want a house. And we say an average family should have a house, four wheels, I mean a car, and two children. One a house, four wheels, yes, and, and two, two children. children. In, in that order. That's right. Is that right? In that order, actually. <laughs> yeah. How is the contemporary Hungarian culture competing with the popular Western culture? Is everything... American pop stars now in Hungary, or do you have your own pop modern scene for young people? Yes, we have our own uh, pop groups as well. But the American, and not only American, but all the uh, pop is uh, popular, uh, which are in the top. Uh, American, international, Hungarian, what, what dominates for young people in Hungary now? It's very different. Some young uh, Hungarians love the Hungarian ones, and some love the Americans. Okay, and in your village, because you live in a village... Mm-hmm. Do the children dream of going to Budapest and having a job there, or do they want to stay in the, in the farm? More and more students uh, are dreaming of going to a big uh, town, mainly to the capital, yes. Hey, we have another caller on the line. Chuck from Florida is waiting patiently. Hi, Hello. Chuck. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. Here at school, grading papers. You're grading papers. Well, right now you've got a Hungarian teacher to give you a little insight. What's your, what are your comments on Hungary? Hey, I just wanted to know, does Hungary have the same type of... Uh, tradition at the cemeteries. We visited a cemetery during our Christmas over in Europe, and it was Christmas night, and many of the families were gathered around the, uh, the grave sites. They lit a little red candle, and they decorated the grave, and they kind of included their deceased ones as part of their Christmas that evening, and I just thought that was just so touching. Now, that's and interesting. I was just wondering, does Hungary do the same thing? Mm-hmm. 
we decorate the cemeteries not at Christmas time, a little bit earlier. You have got Halloween. We have got the 1st of November, the All Saints Day. And if you arrive in Hungary uh, the 1st of November, you will find the Hungarian cemeteries in beautiful candlelights and white flowers. In America, it's just a candy-eating children's festival, but in, yeah. in Hungary, All Saints Day is a, is a more serious uh, religious time it almost. It is very serious. We do not have Halloween, but I love uh, the different holidays. And in my school, every year, I organize Halloween parties. Okay, an American-style Halloween party. In American style. Okay. But the next day, you could go out to the church and find the decorated graveyards, the candles in the graveyards for All Saints Day. Yeah. I couldn't believe how many people were out in the cemeteries actually doing that. And secondly, the things were not touched or stolen or anything. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm constantly reminded of that when I'm traveling through Europe is in our country, we'd have it behind uh, windows and behind bars. But in, in Europe, there's a lot of the heritage and culture that's out still in the open. And uh, if I may add something to the uh, cemeteries, of course, uh, in villages especially, people go to the cemeteries uh, at Christmas time. But what is really interesting, the village tradition, uh, my mom every week goes to the cemetery. My uh, uh, father uh, died uh, more than 25 years ago. But every village people go to the cemetery every week, bring some fresh flowers. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful uh, notion that you can find yeah. when you're traveling. Is people are remembering, remembering their, uh, yeah. their fathers and forefathers and so on. I thought it was beautiful at, at Christmas time with the red lights all in the cemetery, all aglow. Very mm-hmm. nice, Chuck. Thanks so much for your call. Well, thank you for having me. We've been uh, exploring the ins and outs of Hungarian culture with our friend Itelka, and she's a school teacher from a small town in Hungary. I just want to thank you so much, Itelka, for sharing uh, a little bit about Hungary. It's a country a lot of Americans don't uh, know as well as we should. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. And I would like to finish our conversation because Hungary is a wine country, just uh, with one um, sentence. In vino veritas, truth comes out of wine. And you said that in Latin. In Latin. Now tell me that in Hungarian. Borban az igazság. Kosonom. Szívesen. From my heart. I said thank you, and she said you're welcome from my heart. Happy travels. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. It's in the radio section at our website, ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.